I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe February 26th, 2011. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. Well, uh, for folks listening in, you may be wondering what's actually happening with these shows, because I had originally advertised this week as being the week of the show recording, and then my wife and I had to attend a a funeral at relatively short notice, but I was able to get back from the funeral slightly after the standard recording time, and I thought, well, I'd like to have an opportunity to chat to people, uh, particularly folks such as Ed Roy and Terry Terrence, who are currently in the chat. And, um, yeah, I thought it was just an opportunity to record a kind of impromptu show with the view that we will be returning to the regular madness, let's just put it that way, of Model Rail Radio next week. I've got to give shout-outs to uh, the one only Chris Abbott, who is currently under the weather. I said to Chris that I thought uh, between uh, Ted Terry and myself we should have plenty of stuff to talk about. And my assumption is also that other folks will be calling in sometime through this impromptu show. And also to the one and only Duncan McCree. Now, for folks who uh, subscribe to the feed, and I probably should point out that there's a lot of additional audio that's currently going in the feed. So if you're not subscribed either via iTunes or via the RSS feed, you are probably missing out on a good deal of Model Rail Radio goodness. Now, it won't be the live shows, obviously. But um, since I've been away, I've just actually completed some editing on uh, one of Chris Abbott's two interviews, so that will be hitting the feed probably about the same time as this audio does, or actually slightly before this audio. Uh, But if you're not actively subscribed to the feed, uh, you're probably going to uh, miss out on uh, some of this exciting stuff. I have a caller on the line. Hello, caller. Hey, Tom, this is Terry. Good to talk to you, Terry. And I I believe we also have Ted Roy slowly but surely coming off mute. Hello, Ted. I'm here. Terrific. Well, it's uh, it's wonderful to have you both on. And um, I'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to listen to the recent NMRA uh, recording uh, that I took. I I think it was only last Thursday. Uh, But I had a wonderful time hanging out with, uh, with Clark Kerning. I met Jimmy Simmons for the first time. And it's pretty hard to actually get the sense of this from the audio, but if you can imagine sitting in a relatively large conference room, in fact, really, it was more almost kind of a, a more a small ballroom size room with about probably 16 to 18, uh, well, members of the NMRA board. So um, clearly not only uh, not only hobbyists, but uh, clearly lifelong devotees. Um, and just, yeah, having a conversation, it was a wonderful opportunity. When I first got the audio, I was really quite concerned because there was a heavy air conditioning noise that went through it. But I did a couple of audio uh, processing tricks. And then I thought to myself, it was getting to be about 11 at night. And I thought to myself, do I really want to put this audio out without having listened to it once through? And I thought, well, I'm going to trust it. And I think it was a good decision. I listened to the audio the next day. I received a lot of great correspondence, actually, from folks who really enjoyed the audio. Um, Ted, did you have a chance to listen to the NMRA audio? No, I have not yet. I've been, I've been, as you, been busy with a lot of personal things going on lately. That's why I've been kind of scarce. Oh, man. 
Kerry, did you have a chance to listen to the NMRA audio? No, I haven't had a chance yet, Tom. I'll probably get a chance uh, over the next couple of days. I usually listen to all of the podcasts as I'm doing my commute, which is rather long. And uh, this week I listened to, uh, unfortunately, I listened to Scotty Mason and uh, uh-huh. catch up on Model Rail Radio and Model Railcast. Well, I've got to give a shout out to Jim Lincoln because Jim Lincoln is very quickly becoming uh, a fixture on the Scotty Mason show as well. And I haven't actually done an exclusivity deal with Jim Lincoln, but my understanding is that he's going to be appearing at least on the next Scotty Mason show. And if they have any sense, uh, they will recruit him for all the ones following. And it was actually, it was really interesting meeting Jimmy Simmons for the first time as well, because obviously Jimmy's now on, on Scotty's show. And, um, yeah, Jimmy and I had a, it's funny because we both live in Las Vegas, but he lives on the other side of Las Vegas. And where we met uh, Clark was pretty well equidistant between our two places. Jimmy's father is like a legendary model railroader uh, and has, um, you know, I'm not sure how many years, but, you know, 50, 60, I'm assuming, years worth of model railroading experience. And Jimmy himself is no slouch. Uh, he's an amazing uh, craftsman structure builder for folks who are friends with him on Facebook. You've probably had a chance to see uh, Jimmy's stuff. But Jimmy's in the process of moving to San Diego. He'll be in, moving to San Diego in the next few months. Uh, but I would like to get together with Jimmy and his father on location and probably record, as I have done previously, kind of impromptu model rail radio shows. Uh, because Jimmy is really a, a powerhouse uh, in the hobby. And um, it's probably difficult when you both listen to the NMRA audio. The voice towards the end is Jimmy raising some quite critical issues associated with the um, kind of grassroots elements of the uh, NMRA. Uh, but it was wonderful having Jimmy there kind of instigating some of the discussion. But um, a, a bit more of the background of the after discussion, I went out to dinner with uh, Nobby Clark, who is just an amazing fellow. He's a UK uh, model railroader, but he models the US. And Nobby is definitely going to be a show guest. This guy has got... Uh, a lot of character, and I think he would uh, translate very well to the model rail radio format. He also worked for the Tube for a number of years. I think it was 30 years, he said. Uh, and I'm really fascinated by uh, folks who work for uh, uh, the kind of underground subway system uh, in London because it's got an amazing history. Uh, and Nobby is just a, a, a fascinating character. And also, uh, Bill, I, I, my mind has gone blank with regards to Bill's surname, but Bill uh, is in the San Rafael, Marin County area, uh, and is also um, uh, very heavily involved with the... Um, in fact, I think he's the vice president uh, of the NMRA currently, so I probably should get these things right. And, of course, the one and only Clark Cooning and also Clark's girlfriend and uh, Nobby's daughter. We all went out to uh, dinner afterwards. But just after the recording, so I'm going to have to... For, for Ted and Terry, I'm, I'm going to have to give some um, interpolation of the NMRA recording. It started out that one of the first people I got to speak with was the... Uh, head of digital standards. He's the fellow who's, I think, responsible or has some connection with DCC, but is now very much part of the push towards Canvas, um, which I'm not sure if both of you remember the last time we had Duncan McCree on, uh, but Duncan talked a little bit about this Canvas technology that is going to be pushing the next generation of uh, NMRA standards. Now, um, a little inside baseball, which I didn't mention on either recording, um, my previous job um, had a lot of uh, CAN bus related uh, integration and programming. Um, and I have relatively mixed feelings about CAN bus versus something like Ethernet. And I think certainly now with the prices involved, Ethernet is getting sufficiently cheap 
that really the NMRA should seriously consider sidestepping CAN bus and going straight to Ethernet. And I think the real strength with Ethernet over CAN bus is that just the trains and the layout and various other things just become another device that you would connect into through a wireless modem or a, an iPhone or a wide variety of other things. Um, and uh, it, it would just be an amazing way to uh, integrate aspects of the hobby seamlessly. And I guess my concern with regards to the Canvas proposal is it just appears to be more DCC-like, um, probably things that would just, I don't know, I think the plug-and-play nature of doing something with Ethernet just strikes me as being a real no-brainer. And I talked to, uh, the fellow's name was Diedrich Voss, and I really would like to have uh, Diedrich on a future Model Rail Radio uh, because he's, uh, well, he's, he's, I mean, I was surrounded by master bottle railroaders. Uh, quite overwhelming, actually, the general level of standards. I think I got a, an email from Steve in Chicago, and shout-outs to Steve in particular for the last recorded show, uh, because Steve said it was just quite overwhelming, the luminaries that surrounded me. I was a bit, uh, bit disappointed that Tony Costa couldn't be there, actually. Tony had to fly out uh, before the recording, uh, but it would have been wonderful to have a, a chance to chat with Tony. My understanding is that he'll be appearing on a, a future model rail radio uh, to do the stuff that uh, only Tony can do. But um, to return to uh, Diedrich Voss and my conversation with him after the recording, we talked for quite a while about the ability to actually get uh, Ethernet decoders uh, into trains. And I had some correspondence with Duncan McCree uh, in the past day or so asking him what the cost would be associated with creating one of these decoders. And my thought initially, and this is uh, why it's wonderful that we have Terry on the line, was that O might be the first good scale to actually start integrating this stuff. Because when, um, when Duncan was last on, he, he gave this vision associated with the future of model rail that I was really captured by, the idea that the trains will purely use the tracks in order to charge battery power and in reality, they will be completely uh, autonomously controlled through something like Ethernet. And that just strikes me as something that would bring a, a new generation. In fact, really, my generation and the generation, you know, the, the XYZ alpha generations into model railroading very quickly. Because if it was just another kind of Internet extension, for want of a better term, um, the way in which people could start creating model railroads. And when I talked to Diedrich, I mentioned this idea of... Uh, Transcontinental operation, which is just the idea that you can have multiple layouts all connected via uh, Ethernet onto the Internet and have a means of doing operating sessions on different people's layout with some kind of online interaction, but the ability to uh, literally take trains from, uh, well, possibly three different continents uh, and move, uh, move various things around. And as you listen to this, I mean, um, I think you, your background is in telecommunications technology, isn't that right? Yes, it is. Uh, that's why I'm kind of uh, kind of surprised that they'd be looking to to go to build another standard to have to create a whole other set of chipsets to be able to do what they're asking to do. Yeah, I think it's actually. I mean, I made that both in the recording and after the recording. Uh, I made the point really strongly that I thought that they were going to be reinventing the wheel in about five to 10 to 15 years time anyway, and that they might as well go to, I mean, I don't see Ethernet being superseded in the next 15 to 20 years. What's no, your they'll, thinking? They'll move it faster and faster. But, uh, I mean, considering we can run Ethernet over power line, you can run Ethernet over almost anything, and the size of the decoders, I mean, you can get a, an Ethernet chipset now that 
what, it's one chip and five wires, and eight wires. You know, I, I just don't see... I don't see the need to have another communications protocol. Uh, our in, our industry went through this whole thing, uh, what, 15 years ago when you went from uh, you had Token Ring uh, and ArcNet and Ethernet, and they all seemed to, to, to beat each other up until you know Ethernet became the easiest one to do because they wound up coming up with a very, very simple standard. Coming up with another protocol standard to run uh, devices which are almost identical to uh, current network devices is kind of counterproductive in my in my thinking. I would I would uh, I would echo that as well. I'm I'm in electronics, defense electronics, and uh, there's no reason why we need to invent another protocol. Uh, the same uh, microcontrollers that can do DCC and are built into every decoder can also do Ethernet. I know I have one. I use them at work. Uh, they can interpret an Ethernet stack. So the only issue would be do you do Ethernet over the rails or you do it wirelessly over Bluetooth or uh, 802.11G or N or whatever other uh, wireless protocol you want. And in that sense, uh, Tom, I don't think that you would have to start with an O-scale uh, locomotive or rolling stock to do that. You could probably get that down into a decoder of such size that you could put it into an HO uh, locomotive. Um, you might have to do a little bit of jiggering around with the wireless parts of it to get the antenna small enough. But uh, if you have a Bluetooth headset which receives Bluetooth, there's no reason why that couldn't be fit into an HO locomotive. I mean, the, the the Bluetooth transceivers now for laptops are what the size of a dime. Yeah, essentially. And, you get, yeah. and you're and you're going to wind up getting what uh, thirty three feet out of that. You need a pretty big room to to have a problem with that. The only thing that I can think of is the number of addresses that it can deal with. But that's just that's a software issue, not hardware. And that was certainly something that I considered. Um, I mean, I can certainly see circumstances where perhaps locos have address priority and then the, the layout in and of itself. I mean, these days I was at uh, a layout in the Bay Area uh, a couple of weeks ago, thanks again to Clark Kooning, Ted Stevens' layout. I put up some videos on YouTube. And he has the whole layout uh, computer controlled currently through DCC, but there's no reason why, uh, well, particular towns could have specific uh, you know, Ethernet addresses. I mean, there are a wide variety of ways that it could be uh, cut up to uh, avoid uh, address overload. My hope was actually, like I said, to have Duncan McCree on this evening because Duncan is obviously, uh, well, very knowledgeable with regards to electronics, but it sounds like you both have uh, sufficient knowledge. The only question I have with regards to Duncan was the initial cost. And Duncan has really been a trailblazer in this hobby in terms of bringing the cost down associated with this kind of electronics is Servo switches his, his hex frog juicer obviously is uh, is very popular. It even featured recently in Model Railroader. And my feeling is that it's uh, folks such as Duncan who have the smarts and also the manufacturing now uh, who could really be pushing this as a as a possibility. And my only question to Duncan, and you both might be able to answer this as well, is what you would estimate the cost of such a decoder to be. Probably going to be, I'd say, in, in, in volume about 1 to 1.5 what your current decoder is. All you're really doing is adding a wireless section. Now, right now, wireless chipsets aren't 
particularly expensive. The issue with wireless is you have to spend the money to certify it in every country and every jurisdiction where you're going to sell it. And that can make it prohibitively expensive. Um, so you have to go through certification testing in the U.S., which would certainly be lucrative, but and Europe, which would probably be lucrative, but you have to go through each country's certification. So that could be a little bit of a fly in the ointment. Couldn't you also, though, be using, if you're using a standard chipset, have the chipset be certified so you wouldn't have to worry about that? It's not so much the chipset as it is the antenna system and how much power you're pumping into it. To stay within these license-free bands, you have to have a limit on the uh, radiated power. Right, it's 100 milliwatts right now. I mean, right now it's 100 milliwatts, right? In the U.S., yes, but it varies from country to country. So each country wants you to certify that you're not radiating more than uh, that country allows. Now, Lens, uh, which is the DCC system I use, they took a very unique approach to coming up with a radio throttle. They use a cordless phone, not a, uh, not a cell phone, but a cordless phone. And uh, they send the tones over that, and there's a, a unit that plugs into their command station, and it works very well. I use it all the time. In fact, I love it. And their logic is that uh, this way it's the, it's the cordless phone manufacturer who has the certification, who's undertaking that expense, and Lens is just piggybacking on top of it. Is there something that exists like that currently associated with wireless? Are there, are there, is there any way that something like the cordless phone metaphor could be used in, in this context? Well, you know, the the interesting thing could be you could use the rails just for transmitting the signal. Now, again, I'm familiar with the lens system, and their high-end decoders, their gold decoders, have something they call uninterruptible signal processing. But what they're basically looking is they're looking at for the signal on the rail, not by direct contact, but by, I believe, what's a capacitive method because they have a demo where they basically put masking tape on the track and they can still drive the locomotive onto the tape, issue a change of direction, and back it out of the tape so it's clear that the locomotive receives signal all while it's sitting on top of the masking tape on top of the rails. And the only thing I can figure is that they're, they're reading the signal through the rails capacitively. So if you can if you can read the signal through masking tape, then you can probably read it through dirt or intermittent contact. So that would get rid of the the uh, concern about uh, you know dirty track and DCC. So you could do something like that. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So it's wonderful to have you both on because we are actually workshopping this idea. And I guess um, I got a, a text from Jim Lincoln just before I started recording saying, please don't make this too technical. But I think there are a number of folk uh, that listen in on a regular basis that would be uh, very interested. And similarly, I mean, I, I don't want to um, feel, I mean, if, if Dietrich is listening into this in particular, I don't want to feel that uh, I've, I've hijacked this topic of discussion from the uh, NMRA standards board, but the point that I did make to Diedrich after we finished recording is that there's a lot of stuff that, uh, well, there's, there's a huge potential growth in terms of open source and even sold uh, articles uh, associated with model railroading, and the ability to have these kind of uh, 
open standards or at least things that are uh, contemporary uh, is a wonderful thing. In terms of the in terms of the scale, I. I Terry, I originally, uh, well, I mean, you were, you were going to come on anyway, but I thought you'd be wonderful to talk to in terms of entry-level O uh, questions uh, that I had associated with uh, putting in one of these decoders. But um, for folks listening in, could you, um, could you remind the listeners associated with your particular O interests and, uh, and has anything changed since you were last on? Uh, no, not, no, well, nothing much has changed other than I continue to build my layout. Uh, I'm for... Uh, People who didn't listen to episode 30, I'm a two-rail O-scale guy. Um, that's not Lionel. I don't have anything against Lionel. In fact, I rework a lot of their equipment to go onto my layout, but uh, I'm a two-rail O guy. Uh, my railroad is based on uh, the M&K Junction helper station on the Baltimore, Ohio, in uh, Rollsburg, West Virginia. Um, it's filling gradually filling the basement of my, of my home here in Virginia. Um, and uh, my blog, if anyone wants to take a look, is uh, tworailoscale.blogspot.com. And uh, I'm trying, the only thing really that's changed, Tom, since I last spoke was I've been trying to keep my blog up to date because uh, <laughs> people are now taking a look at it. Very good, very good. Yes, uh, just before I got on the call, I mean, one of my, one of my favorite locos in N. Uh, is the AMD NW2, which is just a, a wonderful little switcher. And I was looking at it in O as a possible entry-level O uh, loco that I already had a lot of love for in N. Uh, and it's, uh, it's under $200, actually. It's, it looks quite reasonable. I'm sure uh, one would have to make a, a number of modifications, but Barkman uh, produces it in O. For folks interested in getting into O, it's not as cost-prohibitive as, uh, as some might say, is it? Uh, I, it doesn't have to be. Um, first, of the Bachman you're referring to is, is a three-rail model, but it could be two-rail, or you can leave it as three-rail. If if you stay in three-rail O, if you can if you can uh, you know put up with the center rail and the extra high rail profile and all the rest, uh, there's a, a whole world of choices that generally fall into two different types: uh, MTH Lionel and the now defunct K-Line have scale-sized trains, that is, full quarter inch to the foot scale. They also have a smaller size train, which generally referred to as traditional or 027 sized. And uh, those aren't quite so scale, but they have the advantage of being able to get into very tight spaces. Um, so uh, obviously, since I'm sort of a scale sort of guy, I you know recommend people look at the scale three rail or or straight two rail, and uh, but you know O does not have to be expensive. There's um, there are kits that are reasonably priced. I mean in HO, if you're buying an exact rail car or a BLMA car, you're paying anywhere from twenty five to forty dollars for that car, I, I believe, and you can get similarly priced cars and kits in in O. The Atlas Trainman line, available in both two and three rail, uh, is a very reasonably priced line with cars about forty dollars. Mm. Uh, you can pick up kits, although kits pretty much are now out of production in that everything else newer is ready to run. 
but you can still get plenty of kits on eBay, you know, $20, $25, and, and the, the Intermountain kits, the Red Caboose kits build up into just beautiful cars, very fine detail, uh, very good um, uh, um, dyes they were built from. So uh, O-Scale need not be any more expensive than, uh, than HO when it comes to locomotives and rolling stock. Your track, if you do flex track, is going to be a little bit more expensive. Well, a little bit more than a little bit more expensive. But your main problem with O is, is space. And even mm-hmm. that need not be a, um, a, uh, a, uh, something that stops you in as much as you can stick with traction um, you can stick with a uh, switching layout, a shelf switching layout, and uh, have a very, very decent uh, O-scale setup. As a matter of fact, Tom, when I got your, uh, saw your email earlier today, I was thinking back to a uh, portable layout that used to show up at Springfield every year, which was based on the track plan, the gum stamp and snowshoe, which is from an old Comback mm. uh, track plan book. Yeah. Did this in O, and uh, I forget what the dimensions were, but the, the key thing was he stuck so much detail onto that layout that it was just absolutely stunning. And you forgot about the fact that it was a tiny little layout with a few a few sidings, and you were just looking all over uh, at the detail. And um, if I can find, I believe I have some pictures of that layout. If I can find them, I'll send them to you, and you can post them. So O can be done reasonably priced in a reasonable space. It's not going to be a transcontinental giant that you're modeling, (laughs) but uh, you can do it uh, probably for one and a half times or twice what an HO layout would cost you. Very good, very good. And in terms of, again, uh, a starter question, in terms of the conversion process, and I see we have the one and only Jim Lincoln in the chat, so uh, he's feeding in answers as well. Um, in terms of the conversion process from uh, three rail to two rail, how much effort is it to convert these locos? Um, converting, a, a, let, let me start with rolling stock. Converting okay. rolling stock is almost trivial. Uh, 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 Atlas and uh, MTH sell conversion trucks that basically you pop the old truck off, screw on the new one, and your car can now run on two-rail track. The only other thing you have to do is put on KD couplers, which are pretty much standard in two-rail, and uh, Atlas and I believe MTH have the holes already on the car, so you bolt on some KDs and you're good to go. Converting diesel locomotives, for the most part, is also not a very difficult job. You can uh, buy conversion wheel sets from Northwest Shortline, and you can uh, install those yourself in almost every model. In fact, MTH has what they call their 3-2 locomotives, where they actually sell the conversion wheel sets. And all you have to do is put in the new conversion wheel sets and take care of the, uh, the center rail pickup. Steam locomotives are a little bit more difficult, but they can be converted. Uh, They usually require that you take off the drivers, take off the tires off the drivers, and machine new tires because in two-rail, one of the the drivers has to be insulated between the tire and the driver center. Otherwise, you're going to create a short through the body because 
almost all steam locomotives have either a metal frame or a die cast superstructure or both. So um, it's, uh, it's a little more difficult to convert steam locomotives, but uh, there are people out there who do that work. And uh, it's, not with, it's not beyond the capabilities of an individual if you have some machining in your background. Very good, very good. Well, for folks in the chat, we have uh, Jim Lincoln. We also have Heron Stone. Hello, Heron, uh, a fellow podcaster on another podcast. And the background associated with O was just my discussion with uh, Dietrich Voss of the NMRA associated with uh, Ethernet and Ethernet Wi-Fi control. And I was thinking, particularly going back to the Duncan McCree show, that O would probably be the best tale to start out with, with the view that you might need a little bit of extra space. However, I didn't realize this. I knew that uh, Ted had some background, but I didn't realize that Terry had some background uh, in uh, telecommunications and network communications and this kind of stuff. So between Ted and Terry, um, they have uh, said that basically I wouldn't even need to start with, uh, with O, uh, that it could go into HO. But uh, just leading up to the show, I generated a series of questions associated with getting into O. Uh, and it was yeah, a luxury to uh, to have uh, Terry on the call to answer them, and also uh, Jim Lincoln in the chat. So uh, Ted, you uh, going in completely the other direction. Uh, following the Traction Show, I think you came on one other show to describe uh, an end layout that you were finishing up. How how goes work with that? Well, I'm continuing to build more uh, more buildings, and I've started converting. A whole bunch of uh, little Bachman Brill two truck uh, trolleys into uh, both a a freight motor and a uh, an ice car. Believe it or not, I found oh. a strange plan in trolley talk that for a out of a Virginia railroad that uh, used an ice car in the summer to move to move ice, and it actually was a bright white car with ice painted on the side. The whole thing it was very interesting. So I decided I was going to make one. Uh, that one's in primer. Uh, waiting for me to create some decal sets for it, and then uh, I I took a uh, a Cato slash uh, Atlas uh, UB25V and wound up uh, grinding the uh, the frame down so it actually fit underneath a uh, an older Bachman uh, heavyweight combine to turn that into a uh, a head end power unit for a series of uh, uh, traction cars. So that one's going to be fun. So that's what I've been keeping myself busy with. And then i got to put a small plug in for uh, Miniatures by Eric. I've been working with him to, uh, he's been getting me some parts in N-Scale for traction. And his uh, his uh, his shells are just absolutely gorgeous. i got a shell that fits over the top of a Bachman unit and turns mm. it into a little suburban car. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh works very, very well. And his poles are are amazing for the size that they are. Gosh, do you have any photos of that? Ah, uh, yes, I do. I'll get them. Uh, I'll get them up to you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, as, as you may know, I spent some time in San Francisco with my brother. And yeah. uh, is anyone crazy enough to model San Francisco? San Francisco. I think if you were modeling the uh, the F line, I think you have a lot of interesting choices because they use. PCCs. They use PCCs painted as every color in the rainbow from pretty much every major traction city in the United States, so it would be relatively easy to get stuff. Uh, and it's relatively current, so it would actually be kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it would be a fascinating thing, and particularly in N. I think um, 
I yeah, I was really quite captivated by the potential, and in terms of just the structure building as well. I mean, it's almost like you're right. The the attraction is is beautiful, but the kind of structures, the kind of seats, street scenes one could uh, one could build. I mean, you could even do a relatively simple shelf layout that had a lot of additional detail. Uh, and certainly, my brother took uh, he had a a film camera, uh, quite an eccentric old film camera, and took a number of really beautiful photos of the San Francisco area. And just uh, looking at those and thinking about traction in particular. I think there's a lot of really interesting modelling potential there. I was just wondering if you knew of any specific layouts that uh, that did that that you could recommend. I haven't seen any yet. That. Ah, a challenge. <laughs> Another layout for Jim to do. Very good, very good. Well, the chat room is really warming up. I mean, some background for folks who are listening in. Unfortunately, Chris is unwell. I had hoped to get Duncan McCree on. Unfortunately, he is unwell as well. Uh, but we we have Ted and Terry, and they're really uh, making up for lost time. Ted, one of the questions that came out after the uh, NMRA uh, talk was when our next traction show should be, uh, because I had promised every three months or so that we would do a traction show. So as, as folks may listen in, this may be a little uh, a little uh, taste teaser. My thought was not the next show, but the show following uh, should be another traction show, just because we got such amazing feedback from the last one. Sure, that sounds great. And I think in particular as well, there was one of the, it could have been Bill who sat on our table, who was, maybe it wasn't Bill, someone there was a traction modeler, uh, and he was someone who uh, we were going to get on, and there was also a pre-1900s modeler, who I think was Bill, uh, who will definitely get on as well. So even with the NMRA ranks, uh, there were folks that will be on uh, specific shows following. In terms of the feedback from the traction community, uh, Ted, how was that show received? Uh, very well. Uh, I was poking around on the on the N-Scale board, and, and Alex was there, and I had poked my head in, and uh, people were, were responding to it quite well. Yes, I received email from uh, William, whose uh, handle is Chicago NW, and he had been a... Uh, a feverish, a feverish poster in various forums associated with getting folks listening into Model Rail Radio. And shout out to William. Uh, we will be resuming T-shirts next month, and I think uh, William's certainly in line for a T-shirt just for his service to the Model Rail Radio community for posting. Uh, but he was uh, he was saying in particular uh, that uh, yeah, there were there were a few traction folk uh, that had really. Uh, I don't know, warmed to the format and I think wanted to come on the next Traction show. So like the previous Traction show, we may have quite a uh, quite a short list of smorgasbord of guests that we can actually choose from. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that show because certainly uh, spending time in San Francisco has, has sparked my personal interest and also with regards to the wide variety of structures uh, that are available. I guess we can do our uh, past two weeks in uh, in moral railroading. Well, like I said, I've been away. Uh, I went and actually saw one layout, Ted Stevens' layout, when I was in the Bay Area. Clark was trying to arrange a number of other layouts, but I was all over the place. And Ted Stevens is just a really nice guy. So shout-outs to Ted. Uh, I know he's listening in. He, I used to live in Silicon Valley, and he has created a layout in his office. In fact, he had to actually get a larger layout for his office. 
my experience with working in Silicon Valley is always the sense that you're never really sure if you're going to be in one office from next day to the next. Um, and I think uh, Ted is obviously in a position where he can uh, rent out office space and, and build a Quite an interesting layout, actually. I put some video up on YouTube. Uh, it's coming together. It seems to be a lot of different uh, kinds of operations. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, Ted is really uh, an inspiration in terms of structure building, in terms of just an ability to bring a group of folk together. We talk a little bit about uh, model railroading as really a kind of community. Uh, and what Ted has been able to do is fly in folks like uh, Clark Kooning uh, to work on his layout. He has some Scotty Mason uh, original built structures. In fact, his his structure collection seems to have come from most of the big names in structure building in the hobby. It's the first time really I've actually gotten a sense of craftsman structures built by the likes of Scotty Mason et al. And really the thing that struck me is that they are very similar to the high-end uh, wargaming community. I mean, I've, I've been to layouts and seen a variety of structures that people have built. Uh, but these folk who've really honed their skills and particularly their weathering techniques and all these kind of things to actually see those structures, uh, I guess it was equivalent almost to a kind of craftsman structure-like experience. It was really very curious because firstly you're walking through this unassuming Silicon Valley office park and you just look down a, a literally a series of glass doors, you've got a I don't know, they're selling insurance on one side and they're doing a dot-com startup on the other side. And you see just this glimmer of a layout between these two uh, office uh, offices. And uh, it really is... An, I, it was, I talked to uh, Bill, who's from the Bay Area, from San Rafael, at the NMRA after dinner, and he said it really is a very curious layout because of these kind of combinations of things. But it was really, it was really wonderful to hang out with Ted. And I'm looking forward when I'm next in the Bay Area, I'll, I'll be there with my other brother. And uh, my other brother's more, he's not into model rail, he's, he's into planes and boats and things like that. And he's more sympathetic to wandering around layouts. So I will be going and seeing more layouts when I'm next in the Bay Area. But I return to Pound um, Street, which is a UK company. You can't actually get. Uh, this stuff online you have to actually send uh, it's very similar actually it's kind of almost like the UK equivalent of fine scale miniatures in terms of just being completely off the map but um, if folks are familiar with the film uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels there is some beautiful imagery of kind of central London in that very kind of dark dank kind of old horse stalls that have been repurposed for taxi cab ranks and various other things and Town Street captures some of that aesthetic in their structures and it was something that really caught me initially because I really do like that kind of dank um, UK, it could be Manchester, it could be London, it could be those areas uh, and I'm certainly going to, uh, I'm certainly going to uh, be uh, probably sending some pounds their way and investigating because I think the structure market in this country is very much associated with a particular aesthetic which uh, I know there are structure uh, manufacturers that do the uh, southwest area, for example, New Mexico, these kind of areas. But I think the aesthetic of structures in the UK is very different. The UK obviously has pioneered card structures as well. I'm not so much interested in card. I've done some playing with card uh, in the past, but I just don't quite get the aesthetic. So I'm going to have to order some of this Town Street stuff to see how uh, good it is. It, um, I, I know we've had some... Uh, 
some kind of discussion associated with what you've been up to recently. But have you uh, have you been to any standout layouts in the past two weeks? Has there been anything, uh, or really since you were last on uh, in your model railroading hobby, other than your uh, your layout that you've been uh, interested in? Anything you know caught your eye? Uh, I was actually at my father's today, and uh, and his his layout was featured in N Scale magazine. I think it was their two magazines ago, or maybe three, uh, about a uh, a milk and lumbering uh, sub uh, subsection tied to the B and M, uh, and I was actually running my trolleys on his layout this afternoon. So that that's a, that's the extent of my uh, my uh, visiting. Of different layouts. Did you go to Springfield? Yes, I did go to Springfield. I uh, it, it was I didn't have time to stay to to meet with everybody, but I wound up walking around. And my biggest biggest find I had at uh, Springfield was a set of uh, N scale pantographs. So I was quite happy to get those. Do you go to Springfield frequently, or was this uh, was this an I mean one of the early shows that you've been to? I've been there for the last seven years. And what's your impression of Springfield as a show? Do you think it's growing? Do you think the... Uh, I, I heard on the Scotty Mason show some discussion associated with not so many prams this year and this being a good thing. What, what, what's your assessment of the show? Uh, it's a zoo. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's literally, when they, when they say that it is the largest uh, train hobby shop in the... Uh, I mean, hobby show in the world, it really is. They've now... When they started under the third building... Uh, the first year they had it, it wasn't even full on the the front section of the building. It's now, it's now like the second largest building they have there. Mm. It's it's just amazing. I mean, I literally, when I started going through, and luckily I hit the table I needed for the N scale stuff early, uh, and I was able to uh, actually cut a deal with somebody because I bought uh, the engines. They went with the panographs, and all I wanted was the panographs, and I was going to around and eBay the engines, and we wound up <laughs> splitting the cost on the whole piece of it, and it actually oh, worked out quite good. well. Very good. So, uh, yeah, I got the piece I wanted, and he got the, the engines. Yeah, it, 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 it just kept going and going and going, and it was one of those things that if you, if you see something that you want, you better buy it, because by the time you turn around and go back, like this engine that I, that I was able to work the deal with, the person who had looked at it first who wanted the engines out of it he was there literally five minutes before I was, put it down, turned around, and walked back. Mm. And I picked it up by that time. It, and and literally, I got everything I needed from that one one stall. They wound up having the, the Bachman cars I needed to turn into interurbans. And they wound up having a uh, large-scale, I mean, not a large-scale, but a very uh, a steam locomotive uh, observation car that I've been in the process of cutting down to to match up the, with the, the shorter Bachman cars. And uh, did I get the... Yeah, and I got the reefer car there at the same time that I cut the, the sides off of to create my trolley reefer. So it was literally, it was like everything was right there. It actually worked out well for me. And then I wound up walking around for the rest of the time uh, looking for a good deal on a, uh, a UB25 from either Cato or, uh, or Athern to cut down because I don't even need the shell. In fact, if anybody's out there, send me a me an IM or something if you need the shell for a uh, N-scale U- U25. Uh, so I'll be more than happy to, to cut a deal with you. But uh, yeah, very, very interesting. 
Yeah, but I think you've uh, you've you've touched on some sage advice there, and certainly this came through Jim Lincoln's uh, special recording, and he's also in the chat uh, saying I'm into that. So I guess as as a, a Springfield veteran, the advice is find out where you want to go to make your purchases immediately, make those purchases as fast as possible, and then enjoy the circus. That's right. Um, literally, what I wind up doing is. I go to the, the the largest one first, and I do the perimeter, and then I start cutting back and forth. Usually on the perimeter, there are the dealers I want to deal with. They're not the manufacturers. They're the people who bring all of the, uh, almost like the consignment collections. Mm. And, that's, and that's the stuff I found the, uh, the best deals on. Uh, and, and literally, it is packed wall-to-wall. I went in and just had a sweatshirt. Sweatshirt and a T-shirt on, and I, you know, it, it it was 15 degrees outside, and I literally was dripping with sweat by the time I got out of the first building, and I had my sweatshirt tied around my waist. Wow! And it was just packed. Uh, people seem to be buying a lot of the the inside stalls or manufacturers stalls. Mm-hmm. Uh, the outside ones again are more of the the train stores that had consignment. So. It was it was really really interesting. Very good, very good. Uh, Terry, have you ever been to Springfield? I've been to Springfield. I'd say probably more times than anyone else on the on the uh, podcast today. I used to live in Connecticut. I lived oh. there. I lived in Connecticut for sixteen years. Gosh, so uh, <laughs> was just a hop, skip, and a jump away. And I've been there many times after I moved to Virginia coming up on five years now. I go back every year. It's uh, a must-see. And I would um, I would certainly recommend, uh, Tom, that you make it out there at least once. Um, it is a zoo, but uh, that's the type of zoo I think you like to be stuck in. So would you echo what, uh, what Ted and Jim seem to be saying, that find out what you want to buy early on and then just enjoy the circus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And uh, it's usually bitterly cold. I mean, single-digit cold up in Springfield that last weekend in uh, January. But as I think Ted said, uh, you will be sweating bullets by the time you get through with your first building because uh, with all the heat inside and all the walking and... uh, there's just no good way to dress for Springfield. You have to dress warmly to get from your car to the buildings, but then afterwards you don't need any of that stuff. Interesting. It, it, it was really strange. I literally, I was, uh, I got there an hour after it opened, and I literally was parking by where the uh, the ticket takers were taking the parking money, and that parking lot is like what at least six, eight football fields. Gosh. Well, then, in terms of more local shows, the one that's coming up uh, locally is Sacramento, well, locally, uh, within a reasonable flying distance. And I know that a number of our listeners are going to Sacramento. I'm still working out whether I can get the time off and, more importantly, uh, domestic management, whether I can get the time off there as well. Um, but my understanding is that uh, Sacramento is going to be quite a, a show uh, as well, and a number of our uh, our listeners will be attending Sacramento. I, I traveled by train from uh, the Bay Area through to Reno, and uh, I'd done that train trip a few times previously, about 10 years ago, actually, and there were two guys in the galley doing historical announcements, and I went down and said hello to them uh, in between their announcements, introduced myself, and they were both uh, avid 
perhaps is the right term, maybe rabid model railroaders. Uh, and they were working on a substantial layout for Springfield and uh, talked quite a bit about that. So my hope is just before, sorry, not Springfield, Sacramento. My hope is just before Sacramento, uh, we'll have those two guys on and uh, more of their club uh, to talk a little bit more. And certainly the NM NMRA guys also uh, obviously um, uh, push Sacramento. So my suspicion is that Sacramento may be my first uh, first uh, American show experience, at least. Um, the town I come from in Australia had an annual train show that I used to attend. Uh, but uh, the thing about here is, yes, it seems that uh, you need to work out what you're going to be purchasing well in advance uh, and make the, uh, make the floor plans uh, accessible. But I would like to see Springfield one year. My only concern is that... Um, I, it took me about three or four years to get my immune system level with Las Vegas, and my suspicion is that uh, it's uh, the dreaded Springfield bug that uh, people seem to talk about and what you seem to be describing in terms of combinations of temperature. I may need uh, an additional recoup week uh, just in case. But I actually am developing uh, friends uh, in the Massachusetts area, not just uh, not just Jim Lincoln, but uh, friends in a wide variety of uh, fields. So I think I could probably make it into quite a nice holiday uh, as well. And you both seem to be uh, pointing out that this is an experience that one needs to have. We have the one and only Jim Lincoln on the line. Hello, Jim. Hello. So as you uh, as you listen in with the related discussion, I'm sure you've uh, you've certainly been timing in in a chat. So uh, how are things, Jim? Oh, great. Just great. Absolutely wonderful. I've spent all day, well, not all day, but uh, 12.30 to 6.30 at Mike Rose's working on a turnout. So. Oh, my goodness. He's got you working on all days. I thought you were only supposed to be working on a Monday. Uh, no, whenever I can go. It's, you know, the, the, the pace of work is significantly slower. So uh, because of my schedule, I told him that um, it's probably better if uh, I uh, go as often as possible. Uh -huh. Because I don't, I don't know whether I'll be able to go next Monday or the Monday after that. Or, yeah, I have no idea. So A little bird told me that you... We're also on the Scotty Mason show today. Uh, negative. I, I was a little bird, and it's not until tomorrow. Oh, okay. My apologies. I think someone else told me as well. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so um, have you had a chance to listen to the NMRA audio? No, not yet. Uh, I'm over three so far this evening. Um, yeah, there were a number of points of interest, I think. The... The curious thing was the number of O-scalers on the NMRA, and they were saying that they have had an image problem in recent years with people just thinking that it's an HO group. But I think of the board, there was some statistic like nine of them or something like that. I mean, there were 16 there, so uh, they can't be right. But it's some oh, 9% of the total membership is uh, in O-scale, and it's a scale that's growing. So they, the, their thinking is that O um, is really... Uh, it's really catching up, ends decreasing, HOs decreasing, and I think it might be to do with people's eyes, but people seem to be moving towards O. If they're including three rail O guys in there, then I would tend to agree. Um, there are a lot, three rails really taking off, and the equipment's getting better, and uh, it's, it's not a builder scale, it's a collector scale, so if you don't have the time to build, uh, you put up a table, you put down the sectional track, you're there. 
And uh, I would tend to agree if they're including three rail. Uh, I'd find it tough for the NMRA to be including the three railers. No, no, there's an interesting point with that, because early on in the audio, they make it very clear that they're not interested in three rail. Well, I, I don't want to say that. But they make it very clear that um, they're not Lionel, which is kind of curious because uh, on the last show, uh, we had a UK caller and there was a UK uh, NMRA representative there. And I asked him if the UK NMRA was as anti, well, not necessarily anti three rail uh, as the US branch. And he said, no, they'll take anyone modeling US uh, even if they are doing uh, Lionel. So that 9% statistic and that growth statistic both excludes three rail. Then I, I find that curious, and you know the reason why I say that, Tom, is because most of the time I've been in two rail, which is probably from the early '80s when I mm -hmm. got out of Lionel myself. Um, I've usually been the youngest guy in the room when I'm amongst two rail O scalers, and that's still true today. And I just turned 59. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, that would be well, different. That would sorry. be different if I was in the room with you. That, that's true, Jim, but uh, the only time we've been in the same room together was at the Saturday night dinner at Springfield. There you go. But, uh, yeah, and then I've, I, I'm sure I'm fairly young for P48 or two, so I, I know what you mean, though. Most of the people who, um, you know, are around either P48 or uh, 2 rail O are, are um, older. We'll put it that way. Hmm. That's interesting because of the, I mean, this. um, I read the uh, the ORL magazine uh, quite a bit now, and there seems to be a good portion of that that's too rail. So it's an interesting statistic. It may just be in terms of the like mailing lists and the general online SIG communities and things like that. And oh, do you get a sense of the ages through that as well? Go ahead, Jim. No, go ahead, Terry. You probably have a better handle on it than me, anyway. So. No, I was just going to say I don't think I understood Tom's question. I'm just saying that um, the NMRA is probably doing a greater surveying in terms of area, and it could just be that both of you, well, you both attend shows that probably bring in a wide variety of, uh, of O-scalers from a wide variety of areas. So I was just wondering if you got a sense through um, the SIGs and the various online communities of the, uh, firstly, potential growth in O, and also the kind of demographics associated with O. Well, I've been to a number of, I go to a number of O-specific meets, uh, including the O-Scale National, uh, about every other, every third year. And again, the same thing. I've seen this since about 1985, when I went to my first O-National, and I looked around and said, you know, I'm the youngest guy here, and by a long shot, too. Mm. I tend to think that O is someplace you wind up with at... Uh, model railroading rather than anywhere you tend to start. Uh, people get to O because they've been through HO or N, their eyes are getting w w worse, or in, as in Jim's case, they want to take a model to the ultimate level, and for that you need a, a bigger model. Right, because my eyes are just fine, It's and I have no problem with HO or working in N either. It's just I I like... Um, I just like the heft of O scale. I always have, um, and you know, I was doing high, highly detailed stuff in HO, and it's like, and you know, I heard um, Trevor on the. Of course, it is Trevor's fault, uh, and um, I heard him on the model railcast, 
and he just made some arguments that had been kind of in the back of my head anyway. And I'm like, you know what? I just, I should just go that way. Now, <laughs> having done it, uh, there's a lot more challenge modeling in two rail O slash P 48, uh, being a modern modeler than, um, any of the other scales, even S, even S has more available mm. in modern, in modern, um, O, uh, modern, uh, equipment than O scale, o, o scale does. It's getting better, but, um, you know, there's, you just don't have anywhere near the same amount of things. Uh, and as, uh, Terry pointed out, you know, you have Atlas O, which is great stuff. I mean, it really is, um, nice equipment considering the price. Um, and I was able to get some great deals on stuff at, at, um, uh, Springfield, even though I didn't get what I wanted, I did get other things. Um, and some of the prices can be quite good considering, you know, I mean, if you're spending $30 on an O scale, um, two rail O, o scale, a uh, car, and it costs you $30 for an exact rail, really, you know, it, it's not that much more expensive. Now, that being said, $30 cars in O are not nearly as common as, you know, you can get in, in HO. But my biggest, my biggest hurdle right now with P48 is uh, just no, there's no um, roller bearing trucks. I know I keep saying that over and over and over, and supposedly mm. Protocraft is coming out with them. But um, still waiting. He, you know, there's a couple, about two months, two months, uh, he said, I guess, uh, they should be coming out. Um, and, um, and I think, I know I've said this before is there's only one style of modern boxcar and it's not particularly the most common one. Um, so you end up having to do a lot of, um, scratch building, which I, I suppose, you know, actually, if you end up, if you model, in modern, the modern time in O, then you actually will do more scratch building, which means you'll save more money because you won't be getting as much done. You can't just go out and collect a bunch of equipment like you can in O, in HO, rather. And in terms of, in terms of the narrow-minded, in terms of uh, ON30 and ON3, do you guys consider that O scale or is, is the narrow gauge... I was talking to the NMRA guys about narrow gauge and the kind of internal rifts that go on within these communities. As, as a complete novice to O, do you guys consider the, uh, the narrow-minded folk O-scalers too? I know I certainly do. Uh, if it's quarter-inch of foot, it's O-scale. Roger, I agree. I mean, many times the, uh, the narrow-gagers probably have more in common with uh, P-48 or the uh, two rail lower uh, O gaugers because they're already, I mean, the whole mindset of narrow gauge is to take things to a very highly detailed level. You know, people are interested in a prototype. That's why they model a narrow gauge. They don't, they're not normally saying, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I want to watch some trains go around. They don't do that in, in narrow gauge. Really? Maybe in GLGB scale, uh, but not, like that now. Of course, that being said, I'm my my mom is interested and I'm interested in OM30 because of the beautiful equipment that that Bachman has. 
Oh yeah. I mean the beautiful. I mean the beautiful models that they have. I mean it's just. That Buckman stuff. I mean certainly I've seen it in a local shop, and also the um, and it really is just stunning. I mean to see it in the magazines is one thing, but to see it in the actual metal is is another thing. And also in terms of the actual layout constraints, you could probably do a lot more in terms of shelf and small space layouts with ON30 than you can with traditional O. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just because of the nature of the curves and the size of the equipment. Um, did you get a chance? I don't know if I did. You, uh, what's the name? Um, Backwoods. Did, did, did you ever get a chance to take a look at those, that website? Backwoods oh, yes, models? Yes, the Australian guys. No, not the Australian guys. These are actually British. Oh, okay. Uh, let me just make sure it's backwards because I actually just, um, well, I mean, the amazing thing is the ON30, you go on eBay and I have a sound, I, but the first piece of equipment I bought was a sound equipped Climax mm. for $145 mm. with a tsunami in it. It's, I mean, absolutely tremendously beautiful. Uh, now I spent a, um, let's see, I think it's backwards miniatures. Mm-hmm. I thought they were, they were yeah. you mentioned this did you mention this in a post show, like your first appearance on the post show that your mother was getting into that stuff? She's getting in um yes, that's the one, Matt. Uh okay. backwards miniatures. Yes, I did mention it, but that's uh narrow gauge uh oh that's like and that's not narrow, narrow gauge down the on there. No, narrow gauge. No, that was the bush was the book that uh, Chris Abbott sent me, which is the Canadian narrow gauge stuff. So yeah, it all it all blends together. <laughs> it all blends. No, I can tell you who they were. Let's see, because I'm watching a couple of their pieces. Let's see, they are uh, ON30 down under. Let's see, let me see if I can. Yeah, ON30 down under. The the narrow gauge guys are far less ambitious than than uh, standard gauge guys, and uh, mm-hmm. absolutely right. They have a different ethos about what they're what they're trying to do. Uh, again, no round and round running, um, fewer trains, fewer cars, higher level of detail, and uh, basically uh, they they are probably closer to Proto Forty Eight than they are to Two Rail O. You know that's that's what I've noticed, and because P forty eight kind of have this has the same mindset. I'm looking at building a switching layout. Um, I mean, it would be neat to have a basement full of this, but um, it's just that's just not realistic. Uh, you know, with the amount of detail that goes into these things, you can either have a really uh, well detailed model, or you can have a lot of them. If that makes any sense? It just um, you, you know, you, you can't really do both. Um, and, um, what I was going to say about the, the backwards miniatures, uh, is I, in O scale magazine, the most recent issue, uh, O scale magazine open up and there's a, this picture of a conversion kit to change a, um, a, um, a Bachman outside frame 280, ON3280 into a, um, a saddle tank 282. Mm. Uh, and it's just a beautiful kit. It's only $69. I bought one of those too. Um, so uh, I haven't received that. I've gotten my 280, but I haven't gotten the 
the kit to convert it to a tank engine. But uh, um, neat stuff. I mean, just some of the stuff you can do in you know N30 is just neat, and it runs great. Um, I, I think uh, Dave Ferrari mentioned that on his um, uh, about his Nantucket layout. He used ON30 Bachman equipment because it's cheap and it's reliable. Who's you know, it's not a big deal. The, hmm? Who's the company who does all the die cut sides and the die cut kits for a lot of the Rangeley Lake stuff? They were at Springfield. Oh, I don't know. They were in the uh, the little building that had the the big back end to it. Uh, the first building you oh, walk in, the Mallory building. Uh, Mallory building. They do some beautiful oh. sides for uh, building most of the Rangeley Lake stuff, but they build it in a win thirty. Oh right, I can't think of their name. I remember seeing yeah. them, but and then they also had the ON thirty. Uh, had their modular set up there that was absolutely amazing. This stuff is absolutely gorgeous. What is it, the Narragansett Bay something? Yeah, it was the Narragansett Bay Navigation Company or some such thing. Right. If you uh, go to my blog, uh, I have video of that as part two of uh, the Springfield 2010 video that I took. So if anyone's interested to see that narrow-gauge stuff, the whole second part of my... uh, Springfield 2010 video is narrow gauge. Okay, excellent. I love mm-hmm. just standing and watching their stuff. Yeah, that is that is uh, neat stuff. Very very good. Now, um, oh, they um, I don't know if you remember this. Now, that that really neat uh, mill down one side was it a mill? A mill or they have this one huge structure. I mean, I know they have. I mean, their their module setup is pretty pretty large, but uh, they have this one like stamp mill or something. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, Terry. No, I don't remember any stamp mill. Um, There's a very large structure along in on one of the modules. Um, it really shows you what yeah, I mean you can do with um with oh. Um, I, I, I wish just, I could remember. What I just may not remember it, Jim. Um, was that part of that Narragansett uh, club? Yes, the narrow gauge, the modular Fremo. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't quite cover all of that because it was just too too big. I did hmm. get some of the harbor scenes, and I think uh, where that they had that large ship loading, but I don't remember a okay. stamp mill. But it could very well have been there. Well, I don't know if it was a stamp mill. I knew there was a very large structure, and I didn't know. Don't know. Remember whether. Ted might have remembered what I'm talking about. No, I think it skipped. That one skipped me. I, I tend to have my favorite layouts I go to over and oh. over and over again <laughs> just to see what they're doing. And that was one of them. And there's another one out in a uh, company out in Westfield, Massachusetts, who comes in and they wound up doing uh, FN3. Uh, oh, right. Large-scale large stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were in the Mallory building in the front. I think so. Yeah, I knew, really I nice. Think, stuff. I knew there was there was a really neat. Um, I didn't know if it was a F N three or G uh, scale layout in the um, in the front of the Mallory, but well, front the small half. It, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You bring up something when you just said that we didn't know if it was F N three or G. There's a there's a large debate in the large scale community about uh, NMRA. Uh, uh, rules and regulations that associate to the large-scale industry 
because G-scale is a complete misnomer. It's actually just a track width because mm -hmm. everything that runs on it, everything from 132 to uh, 20.3, and there's actually some 116 out there too, it all mm -hmm. uses the same track. Right, number one, number one gauge uses the same track. Right. But and, number and one is what, 124th or 132? No, uh, isn't, yeah, 132 is number one. Okay. But uh, the, the, even wiring on locomotives, there's a switch on all the Bachman stuff that takes it from mm -hmm. large scale to NMRA. And then there was a whole big thing about the, uh, there's supposed to be a socket that they were dropping in to put in decoders and things to make everything be the exact same style and everything else so that everybody could use the same style of decoder. And there was a lar large uh, debate in the large-scale community about how that was all supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I, I understand a lot of the stuff when it comes to uh, how they determine the regulations and come up with standards because... In a lot of stuff, especially we were talking about in the narrow gauge stuff, it kind of falls outside the lines for for the NMRA. Interesting. I know there was a big debate. Uh, one of the things that I was reading about, because there's no, um, amongst the manufacturers, there really isn't a standard coupler in large scale, like FN or G or whatever. Correct. There was a big, there's, there's, I was reading about a model railroad news, model railroad news, you know, KD was trying to make one, um, but between all the manufacturers, there are, they have all different couplers. Correct. Uh, USA Trains uses their own that couples to Bachman, but has a hard time coupling to Aristocraft. Aristocraft will mm -hmm. couple to Bachman, but won't couple to to USA Trains. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's KD out there, and then... Uh, a lot of the large-scale guys with the KD couplers, they get the KD couplers and then cut the uh, the uh, the pseudo air hose off on them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, you're right. Uh, LGB has their own the hook and loop, and then yeah. uh, uh, Aristocraft just came out with one called. They're coming out with one called the coupler, K U P P L E R. And uh, again, oh, everybody's right. holding. Yeah. Everybody's holding their breath to find out how this is all going to go over because pretty much everybody in the large-scale community, it's either they're secular, meaning uh, manufacturer-specific, or they've gone over to Katie's, or they're using the old-scale hook-and-loop stuff that the LGV does. Mm -hmm. Right, and then not you know it goes beyond that. It's like the, not only the you know the couplers are different, the heights are different. I mean, it's like. All over the map because I, I read about it in Model Railroad News. Yeah, um, had an interesting article about it, that, and that's it, what it, I think it, they were talking about. It wasn't it was the coupler that they were talking about, not the KD. Right, I think. right, and a lot, you're you're right. And it, KD has a standardized height. The hook and loops are relatively standardized if they come out on a on a Talgo, uh, because. USA trains, uh, depending on what their boxcar, their old series boxcars, the stuff that's nominally 124th, is almost a photograph, is a reproduction of a LGB boxcar. So it it lays out correctly with there, but even if it's small for 124. And then they've all decided to go to uh, one, 129, 
which is another odd size because it's bigger than, than what it should be. So it's hard to get the st standards are like all over the place when it comes to this. And the only real right. standard that's out there is actually FN3, which is 120.3. Because mm -hmm. that literally is three feet, three foot gauge at, at uh, 45 millimeters. Okay. Interesting. I just, you know, I don't pay a lot of attention to anything larger than O. <laughs> well, I, I, I spent the last six years really, really working on the, uh, uh, on that side of the house and, and then transitioning into, uh, O scale, I mean, G scale traction, not G scale traction, 124 scale traction. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's very interesting to, it's a very, uh, Opinionated group, let me put it that way, when it starts getting into the, uh, as we call it in my work, we have the seven-layer OSI model, which has to do with how transport works in networks. We always get up to layer eight and layer nine, which is uh, uh, religion and uh, politics when it comes to this stuff. They're already right up there into the religion and politics of all different types of changes that happen. <laughs> As this is a pretty open show uh, for for any kind of discussion, you've been listening to Terry, and Terry, you've been listening to Ted. What what kind of overlaps do you think you have in your modeling, and we'll take it in that direction? Gee, that that that's a good question. What what I, I'm not even clear what scale Ted models in. I I do traction modeling in one twenty fourth on uh, nominally G scale track, and I do N scale traction modeling. Oh, okay. Well, I don't think there's any or or much overlap in in prototype there or in 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 style, but uh, um, I think we're both probably electronic geeks. Is that a correct assumption there, Ted? Uh, electronic in use only, uh, and I, I think this is a strange qualifier for me. My my background is in. Uh, Military history and archaeology. Mm. Yet I'm a network engineer with, you know, 15 years in. I see. So well, I don't come from the EE background that a lot of the engineers come from. Mm -hmm. So I'm good at hooking things up together because I know they're compatible, not because I can tell you electrically how they're compatible. Ah, uh, okay. Well, there, there. I'm on the electrical side of that. I mean, I heard you mention the seven-layer OSI model, and I, I do. Uh, lead an engineering group who does uh, networking, optical networking, actually. Uh, but my background, uh, while I do understand the network concepts and and have some network under my background, I'm mostly mostly on the hardware side. So we're probably not, uh, we're not, uh, 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 one of my interests in, uh, in model railroading, other than, you know, locomotives, rolling stock, scenery, building a layout, are the electronics. I guess that came through earlier in uh, tonight's discussion. Um, you know, I have uh, uh, a DCC set up. I'm looking at uh, ways to that DCC can be extended. Ultimately, I will get uh, my whole layout running uh, via computer. And uh, I want to loop back to one thing, one observation you met, made earlier, Tom, 
is uh, you said, you know, uh, with uh, Ethernet or something, we could be dispatching model railroads from across the country. Well, if you've listened to uh, to uh, Ryan's podcast, there actually are guys who dispatch their railroads from across the country, and you can do that today with uh, Panel Pro as part of JMRI. So, Certainly. Yeah, I, I was well aware, actually, that there is a community that already does that. I just thought it was something that would be considerably more transparent if Ethernet was, in fact, used. I'm, I'm interested... Um, I'm interested, Terry, in the size of your layout. How, how big is your layout, actually? It's about uh, 26 by 37 or so. Um, Ooh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, but <laughs> therein hangs an interesting tale. The house I built in Connecticut was built, as model railroaders tend to say, with, as a basement with a, uh, with a house covering it. It was uh, 24 by 52. Unfortunately, I never got any traction to build a layout in that basement. So the one I have down here in Virginia is a bit of a uh, bit of a come down from what my earlier ambitions were. So even in O, that's got to be quite a layout. Yeah, it's 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 a nice it's a nice little layout. It's it's um, I'm using a track plan that's a derivative of the one that uh, John Armstrong used for his Canandaigua Southern uh, mm. without the second loop of track in there because I just didn't have enough uh, enough room for it, as I think I, I described on the earlier program, uh, because I have uh, uh, some of the larger uh, O-scale engines. As a matter of fact, characteristic of O-scalers uh, you go to any O-scale swap meet, and you're going to see the biggest locomotives that were owned by any particular railroad. O-scalers love to run big locomotives and long trains, which usually means that even the largest basements wind up to being, uh, you know, once or twice around <laughs> type loop to accommodate these large locomotives. Uh, mine's a little bit of a variation on that in that it's uh, around the basement and into a central um Helix, which will be serial staging. Ah, very nice. So what's the minimum radius? Um, my minimum is uh, 64. I'm using 64, 68, and 72. Ah. And I'm putting in some hidden trackage now that doesn't show on my original plan. I came up with this harebrained idea last year, and I'm actually building it right now before it gets covered over by the main line. And that will be a, a little bit uh, smaller radius, but that will be limited to smaller locomotives and diesels, which can fit around tighter uh, turns. Well, I'm speechless, much as Jim Lincoln is with regards to uh, just visualizing this layout. It sounds like a, a wonderful place to play toy trains. Well, I hope it will be when I get it finished. I'm, I'm going to make a major effort push to try and at least finish the main line this year so I'm not running trains from, you know, once around the basement and reaching two dead ends. Uh, yeah. The other thing is I'm not bringing out most of my brass until the main line is complete. The last thing I want to do is run a brass locomotive off the end of the track. So uh, it's it's going to be a while before the main line is finished, but, you know, I'm going to try and at least see how far I can get this year. It's been building since 2007, and uh, progress has not been very swift but that's mostly me. So you took an existing track plan and just 
changed? What what percentage of changes did you put on that track plan? Well, if uh, if you get John Armstrong's Hanandega Southern, the, the layout he built for himself, uh, he goes once around the basement and then brings it out into a spiral in the center of the room. So the spiral is is uh, like a turn and a half spiral, and I didn't have I didn't have room for that that other leg of the spiral. Uh, I'm not describing this adequately. Um, but if you look at the Canandaiga Southern, I go around the room and bring it into a central um, helix. You can see the, my track plan on, on my blog in case you're interested. And uh, the helix, as I said, will be two turns and they'll hold the two or three trains on uh, each track in that turn. So it, it forms my my staging yard except for this uh, this um, uh additional shotgun, you know, single-edged staging that I'm putting in right now. So uh, it's three tracks in one direction, two tracks in the other. They condense down to two tracks at the helix, and uh, that's pretty much uh, it's pretty much a description. Again, uh, pictures and some videos, some limited videos on my web. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, uh, to continue to whet the appetites for folks listening, and I'm sure they're probably already on your website, but just to c continue the discussion, you obviously haven't gotten bored with this layout if you've been working on it for uh, for a good number of years. How would you describe your um, your philosophy? I mean, do you do you lay track and then uh, scenic the area? Do you build structures, lay track? What, what's your general philosophy associated with uh, keeping this layout going? So far, it's just been building bench work and laying track. I have one backdrop up, which you can see in just about every picture I've posted because it's the only, only <laughs> scenery I have up. Um, I, I'm going to get at least the main line finished and then uh, uh, finish, then start the scenicking. Uh, and then it'll probably be structures will be mixed in with the scenicking. Um, I haven't gotten bored with it, but I have been frustrated with the slowness of uh, the construction, but again, that's mostly me. I'm a little bit uh, tentative in that this is the first serious layout I've ever built um, since I was a teenager in Three Rail Lionel. And uh, I'm a slow and careful worker, and I want to make sure that my track is as bulletproof as I can make it because I just don't want to have to go back and redo it. So I've been taking a lot of time, I'm, you know, using best practices as I understand them. Um, every two sections of flex track has a feeder, at least one feeder. All those feeders are dropped to a 12-gauge uh, a bus, and uh, all of those are put in as I go along rather than coming back and putting them in later. Um, so uh, it's just, just slow going. Um, I'm just looking forward to the day when I can... Uh, when I could run a train around in a complete circle and, uh, you know, have a, at least a mock golden spike ceremony. Hmm. Mm. Ed, as you listen in, your, your track planning philosophy is, is very different than Terry's. Could you outline it for folks listening in? My track planning philosophy is I do an awful lot of drawing before I even get to lay any type of track. And I keep refining the drawings, and I will wind up having these kind of 
uh, miniature brainstorms that completely redesign what I'm doing. So on my account, especially when I came to when I was doing my large-scale stuff, I got my major loop down to what I wanted to do, but as I continued to progress, I continued to refine and refine and refine to the point where I, I have yet to be able to put down any permanent track. Because I, every time that I get to the point where, yeah, okay, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to go and, and set up, and this is great, I love it, and everything else, I'll be in a meeting, and I'll start drawing a section of the layout that I already have done. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it will become, if I do this, what happens if I do this? And then I redo the whole thing. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now because I really like the way this worked, and then I try to take all the pieces of all the things I liked and keep moving forward on it. What I wound up doing on my end scale layout, uh, because it is so, it should be considered a micro, mm -hmm. that I literally, I wanted one that I could run in something that I could actually see the end of. So literally, I put the track down as fast as I came up with the idea, and then I've wor been working around it ever since. <laughs> I think a lot of people, though, may wind up getting into the same almost uh, into the same rut that I'm in where you can't you can't seem to move forward because you're never happy with what you've come up with so far. I'd like to be able to at least find a way around that type of a block and I have yet to be able to figure that out. How does this process work for you, Jim? How does the process of doing what? Um, nope. Designing a layout. Uh, I mean, I think we've almost gotten two extremes here between uh, Kerry and Ted in terms of uh, going to a classic track plan and just expanding a little or working within the space. And then Ted, which is maybe on some accounts overthinking it to uh, perhaps a particular extreme. You what? You have three functioning layouts in your general vicinity, Jim. How, how do you come to uh, to actually uh, designing the layout and, and general track planning? Um, let's see. The N scale layout is a copy of. Jim Sacco's display layout, although it's mm. reversed. Uh, it, it is a gum stump and a snowshoe um, with a loop around the outside. It's a, there's, a, there's a continuous running loop with a gum stump and a horseshoe, a small yard in the front. So that's totally stolen. Um, let's see. Then I have uh, the 4x8 layout that I have available was... Um, uh, that was just a um, Woodland Scenics kit. So I just did it exactly mm. in the kit um, showed. I, I did that because I was getting back into the hobby and I wanted to get my hands into some scenery. And I figured it would be a good way to do it. And unfortunately, um, I was far enough along, you know, r realistically, that um, as soon as I ran a train on it, I lost interest. Mm. Uh, because it's, I, I'm not interested in things going around chasing their tails. Mm. Particularly now that I work for the railroad, it just doesn't interest me. <laughs> and and the the um, and while we may run around chasing our tails, uh, it's for different reasons. Um, at least that's the way it seems some days. But. Um, so the, the the HO scale layout that I was working on was an adaptation of the yard that uh, it's a small yard, but it, it's a yard um, that I work over here in Mansfield. So it was essentially the same track layout as um, 
the yard mansfield. So what now what I do is I'm t- trying to take prototypical. Um, <laughs> uh, I take <laughs> yes, that's extremely true, Phil. That's right. We get we run around with our we run around chasing our tails, but at least we get paid. It, it was a it, it was an ad that adapted version for the thing that I was going to do um, of that yard. And then um, what I'm doing now, the P48, uh, I'm taking a section of a real town. I'm going to try to reproduce it as best I can, considering the, considering the radius I'm, I'm stuck with. And then I'm going to do individual uh, like little scenes. And the main thing is I'm going to, on one wall, I'm going to, Basically, the whole wall is going to be one industry because I want to model it um, to scale. And to do that, I'm going to need about 20 feet. So this is the corn syrup plant. That the corn syrup plant. Right. So that's that's going to require about 20 feet. Uh, then on the inside of the curve, I'm going to have a lumber industry. But the good thing about that is because it's on the inside of the curve, even in real life, the the, uh, the actual prototype is on the inside of a turnback curve. Uh, with a, a really neat um, railroad station that I was able to get the plans for that we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Um, on the outside of the curve, that's going to be on the outside of the curve where I, you know, I'm planning on modeling. Inside of the curve is this lumber industry, so I can have, you know, lumber cars. And then, although it's not there on the prototype, over on the other side by the the turnout going to the uh, the lumber industry, uh, that that wall is going to be um, cornstarch plant. Um, I'm trying to base my um, my uh, my layout planning on real locations because then they work. You know, if you build, if you make your track plan um, as close to a prototype as possible, uh, then at least you know it will work correctly. That's an interesting uh-huh. point, Jim. I mean, because certainly when I was doing my Las Vegas layouts, I went and rail fanned a couple of areas that were accessible. And some of those tracks make absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And what mm-hmm. I found particularly curious is the short, the really quite short, you know, maybe five, uh, you know, five standard, uh, standard covered hoppers long areas with bizarre industries and multiple tracks. I mean, I know what one of the, I know the um, ocean spray industry. I know exactly what that does. I know exactly what Cedar Rails, what I have here. I know there's a, um, a freighting company, very easy to understand, but there is a, there's a section of track in North Las Vegas with two industries. I suspect one creates um, food flavoring and the other one has some kind of steel offset. And the tracks associated with that area, just looking at the locos and the potential cars that are going down those tracks, make very limited sense to me in terms of the organization. It seems to be a lot of additional work um, in terms of just getting uh, you know, particular, uh, particular cars to particular industries, which may in and of itself be an interesting switching problem. But I think um, yeah, for, for industries where you can obviously see what they're doing, uh, the the actual track plan can be a very good thing. Uh, when I went to design this, and I did actually build this section of track and start experimenting with actually moving cars around and, and switching on it, I found some very strange, almost situations where the front and back of the locomotive would need to be moving cars 
simultaneously and various other switching problems. So I think for larger areas or maybe even smaller track plans associated with specific industries, that may be the case. But also, I guess in Vegas, historical reference isn't as important as in your part of the world. And I can certainly understand, and I was looking at the track almost with the potential that this could be maybe 30-year-old track for a completely different industry that has since gone and all this kind of possibility uh, when I was actually uh, putting that together. But I've gone from both extremes. I've done both, um, like I say, uh, prototype track areas from Vegas and also things to maximize switching problems. And certainly for my shelf layout, I have a propensity uh, or a general interest in the late evening to have some very curious switching problems just to keep my mind active in a completely different way. And um, I plan track like that. And I think probably the, the new shelf layout uh, will be that kind of track plan, maybe with a particular kind of prototypical flavor. I mentioned the EMD uh, NW2s that I uh, that I really like, uh, which puts it in a, a time period outside my usual uh, safe zone. Um, so, yeah, I think the, uh, yeah, this, this, its description of it's not a it's not it's kind of a sub element of analysis paralysis almost um, I don't know what one would call it. So Terry, as you listen into uh, as you listen into these musings, you've obviously taken a well a relatively easy uh, easy. Is there any is there any part of your layout which you have uh, kind of proto lanced or uh, taken some artistic license on that you can give some insight into? Well, I, I have, but let me make one other comment. I didn't just. Uh write come out and copy John Armstrong's layout. Mm-hmm. I did do several several dozen track plans to fit the basement. But you know, after about six months in I said, I have to stop, pick one and go or mm-hmm. I analysis paralysis forever. Now having said that I have simplified the prototype on the on the layout. I've simplified MK junction simply because I don't have enough space to do it to full scale, much like uh, Jim was suggesting, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how it works if I have built in enough helper pockets. And then uh, the two grades out of MK Junction were effectively industry-less, and I didn't quite want to have no industries. So what I did do was I took the Alpha Portland Cement Factory, which was on the other side of the Cheat River, and serviced by the Baltimore and Ohio, and I brought it over to my side of the Cheat River on the Cheat River grade. And I'll put the Alpha Portland cement there, and uh, I'm putting in a coal mine in another corner that was not on Cranberry grade, uh, just so that this isn't just a, a very nicely scenic roundy roundy, um, and I'll have uh, at least a, a few opportunities for industry switching. So yeah, I've I've uh, I've violated the prototype, but other than those two excursions, um, uh, it's pretty much if you looked at pictures of this um, this uh, part of of West Virginia and then what I'm building, they look pretty much analogous. What advice would you give to someone like Ted who is in this uh, is in this phase? I mean, what in, what encouragement in terms of actually settling with a plan and uh, and getting working? You know, the thing I would say is the thing that you can never make up for is lost time. So for the the months or years or even longer that you spent, you know, doodling track plans and and trying to come up with the perfect track plan, you could have been building, uh, you could have been enjoying your layout. I wish I had been able to start back when I lived in Connecticut and had an even better basement. 
but that just wasn't possible due to circumstances. And uh, I, I regret that lost time. So I would say don't don't get into a position where you know a year or two or three from now you're going to regret the time that you didn't build an imperfect or a less than perfect layout. Well, I'm into that. Well, I think that's uh, that's exactly the kind of sage advice. And it's interesting actually spending time with Ted Stevens because that's exactly Ted Stevens' advice as well. This is his first serious layout, and he wished. Um, that he'd had the opportunity to do that many years ago. And really, part of the discussion with the NMRA was, um, and Matt Goodman is a, is a good example of this, uh, using this very, uh, this very podcast, Model Rail Radio, as a means of inspiring people actually to start laying track and, uh, and uh, making firm commitments to uh, their particular layouts and their uh, particular interests. Um, Jim, as you listen in, any, any additional sage words on this topic? I, I think that, um, Terry's comment about you just have to, you know, it, it sounds trite, but, the, you know, the, um, what was it, Nike said, just do it. And eventually, you, the same thing's happening with me. It's because I'm looking at what I want to do. I may have an idea of what I want to do with a track plan, but I'm mulling over how I'm going to build it. Um, you know, how I'm going to do the bench work. Do I want to build it so that it will come out? If I can move it, if I have to move and and things like that. So I'm stuck in kind of a rut, which is kind of nice why I've been able to go over and help Mike Rose out. I'm actually able to do something without having <laughs> to think about it. Uh, he has to do all the heavy thinking. I just have to build things, which is tremendously liberating. When, when you're done with Mike Rose's lounge, is there any chance that uh, you can catch a train to Vegas or something? I mean, uh, I'm sure I could get you to work. <laughs> in fact, I think there are a number uh, of listeners. We we need to run a contest, Jim, to win you. That is that that should be the next model round radio contest. Is uh, win Jim Lincoln for for a week? Yeah, something uh, like. Hey, that. you! If if somebody pays my way, and pays <laughs> for me to be there, I will happily come and lay turnouts for them for a week. But you'd have to pay me to go do it. But not not a lot. I mean, just 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 pay my guarantee, and I'd be happy. <clears throat> um, probably probably a bargain, actually. But um, no, a month, a month, Steve. Good God, sure, no problem. You pay the you you pay <laughs> no soup for me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Oh, well, if you were paying my and if you're paying my guarantee, I'd be able to buy my own soup, Steve. But that's the biggest thing, probably, is just to you know choose something and. Well, do something. You know, if you, you know, if you, if you have a layout that you have in your mind and you can't, you know, take a piece of it and make make a module, and then at least you can have something that you can run trains on. Um, you know, instead of saying, "Well, I've got this big, huge, you know, basement to fill," you know, build something. Um, keep your, you know, your skills up. Um, be able to understand things. Somebody else made a comment is that prototype uh, track plans don't necessarily always fit in your basement, which is true. Um, that That's very true. A lot of track arrangements don't necessarily make a lot of sense for a model railroad, and I'm not saying that it does, but many times track arrangements in the prototype are pretty simple, mm. and um, we don't need to overthink things. A very simple track plan can be quite the switching problem. Definitely. Um, and I was suggesting, and there's different things that we can do on our layouts that can make 
operating on them significantly more interesting. Jim, anyway. aside from this, I've mentioned uh, I've mentioned going and seeing Ted Stevens layout, and uh, mm-hmm. Ted has employed Clark and others to do a phenomenal amount of uh, fast track turnouts. Uh, so mm-hmm. I mean, I guess basically someone's already hiring. Uh, you, you're tapping into Clark's. Uh, like bread and butter, I think, in terms of actually going and doing what you're describing already, um, in terms of flying in kite uh, cooning and getting him to uh, to build umpteen. In fact, there's a yard on Ted Stevens' layout, which I'm not sure if you've seen my YouTube clips of this layout, uh, but there's a yard that has... Uh, I've never seen a yard quite like this. It's got a wide variety of, uh, of very, very strange uh, configurations. I'm trying to even find words to describe it, but again, utilising uh, fast tracks to the kind of nth degree. Um, so uh, this is my first experience actually seeing fast tracks in the metal in terms of the turnouts. And I was phenomenally impressed. I mean, I have to say that uh, do they do N turnouts or yes, uh, yes. they do? Wow! They, because I think they even do Z. They do wow! Because my initial thinking was the only scale that I have any interest in where I would want these kind of turnouts would probably be OO. Uh, but if they do N, oh my goodness! Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. We have the one and only oh, Matt no, Goodman now on the line. Hello, Matt. Hello, Tom. How you, how you doing, guys? Hey, Jim. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Matt, have you had a chance to listen to the NMRA audio? No, I, I just realized <laughs> I hadn't downloaded it. <laughs> four for us. <laughs> yeah, four for four, right? Yeah, something like that. So yeah. um, it's, been, uh, it's been a few weeks since we last had you on. What's been, uh, what's been going on in model railroading for Matt Goodman? Uh, last couple of weeks have been a little bit slow. I've been uh, helping out my daughter with a uh, with a play and some props and whatnot. Uh, not a variable pitch as uh, Christmas. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, think, I think the last thing I left off on was that uh, I am now an official NMRA member. I got my card in the mail a couple of days. Robert, ago. you were actually used as an example to the NMRA in terms of conversions from listening to Model Rail Radio. So that was part of the reason that I asked if you'd actually heard the audio because you are mentioned by name specifically because of that. Oh, nice. Okay. Good, I guess. Uh, but uh, beyond that, I've been, uh, uh, as far as the shelf layout's concerned, I've been just uh, cleaning, cleaning some things up there and uh, trying to move ahead on that. The discussion here earlier about analysis paralysis has been a very good one, and uh, I want to listen to that again once this comes out on the on the feed, uh, because uh, I, I was looking through my CAD rail drawings uh, a couple weeks ago and saw one that was dated uh, some something in, in the year 2000. Gosh. <laughs> now, now there's been a few changes as far as where in the basement that basement layout is going to go, and and uh, there's been actually some progress on that front, but. Uh, but there's been one sticking point that I've mentioned in the past one time before, which is how to get my uh, get from the lower level to the upper level, uh, mm. that has just kind of buffaloed me for the longest time. And uh, um, I uh, recently, I'm going to jump around here a little bit, but recently I also joined the Layout Design SIG mm-hmm. and got the first journal in the mail a few weeks ago, and uh, there was an article in there that discussed, you know, trying to get uh, just a high-level um, idea of what your layout wants to do first and then go to, uh, then start thinking about individual um, scenes that you want to model. Um, and actually, my dad has been a big proponent of this as well, and, and so I think what I need to do is step back from the from the problems I'm having with this one design problem, uh, you know, getting the train from one level to the next, and uh, start focusing on uh, uh, 
small elements that I can have some control over and then connect those together. And then that way I'll have some, I think I'll feel like I have some progress. But uh, I also spent some time looking around at Phil's pictures. Uh, those are very encouraging. Uh, mm. Gee, you can build a layout in a pretty short amount of time and in high quality as well. So, uh, uh, Phil, thanks for posting all those photos. That's been very inspiring. Yeah, I think the, the mailing list is worth a plug here because certainly the uh, recent discussion, I think Jim Lincoln was noting that there's been so much discussion recently that he's even lost questions that were directly sent to him through the mailing list. So I don't know how we're actually going to uh, control this uh, quality of information, but there's certainly been a lot of interesting posts, a lot of interesting uh, uh, photo libraries, as, uh, as Matt is describing, and uh, interesting problem questions. So. For folks listening in, if you're not already on the Model Rail Radio uh, list, the mailing list, uh, please go to modelrailradioalloneword.com, uh, click on the mailing list and subscribe because out of the listeners, there are actually more people on the Facebook group, vastly more people on the Facebook group than there are on the mailing list and obviously there are considerably more listeners that are just tuning in. So if you listen and you hear about the discussion associated with the list, it's not a closed community, there are no fees, it's all free, just... Subscribe and then brace yourself for what has recently been, I mean, it feels like 30-plus emails a day, all quality content stuff, but there's just a lot of email coming through the list currently. And, Matt, it seems like you're uh, you're enjoying every single post. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of listservs. Uh, they just somehow they, they fit my communication style well. Um, and uh, we've talked about the wiki here in the past. I think that some of this information that's coming through, we need to kind of consolidate and get in one place so that we can... Yeah. Uh, really take advantage of all this uh, combined knowledge that uh, and the Jims and the Phils and the Teds and everybody out there has. Certainly, certainly. And um, uh, when you first came on the show, you talked a lot about the ideas of uh, of agile development associated with uh, model railroading. And there have been some kind of backwards forwards, uh, brain dump discussions, these kind of things, uh, mind maps, uh, What's your current thinking in terms of taking all this stuff out in typically software and engineering processes and using that actually in a model railroading hobby? That's something I want to give uh, actually more thought to because uh, uh, I, I was recently in another, you know, we, we occasionally have uh, uh, meetings at work about uh, you know, just kind of refresh ideas about agile and pro agile development and whatnot. And it kind of gets me thinking again, how can I apply this to something that's, uh, uh, you know, physical? And, uh, yeah, as discussed before, I'm a big fan of mind mapping, and, and uh, or at least in the way that I do it, which is, uh, you know, there's some great programs out there and whatnot to do mind mapping on. And mind mapping, for people who don't know what this is, is it's kind of a way to take uh, a bunch of different kind of uh, loose ideas that you might have and, uh, and having a, a method or a, a framework in which you can kind of consolidate those ideas into tasks you can actually accomplish. So uh, the way I do this, for example, is uh, just with uh, sticky pads. So I'll be, as I'm working at the, the workbench or uh, sitting around the house, whatever, I'll, I'll, if I think of something I need to do, I need to run, I need to run wiring, I need to, do, uh, I need to go purchase this item, I need to uh, get these kind of supplies or uh, tear up this track or put that track down, whatever those individual little tasks are, I'll write them down, stick them on a uh, dry erase board, and what you do later is you can kind of combine those tasks, uh, everything that's, that's uh, rail-related, for example, you can kind of combine those all together, all those things that are related to uh, purchases that you need to get done 
for some future event. Uh, you can kind of combine those all together. And, and then you have kind of a, a executable task. You know, you, you can sit down, rather than doing just itty-bitty onesie-twosie things, you have uh, a lot of onesie-twosie things you can do as a consolidated whole. Uh, I hope that makes sense, but it's it's it's, it's a way for me. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have ideas that just come out up everywhere, just kind of bounce all over the place, and uh, and uh, they won't necessarily be in context with what I'm actually physically doing at that time. So I need a way to capture those things to make sure they don't get away from me. So that, down the road, when I'm ready to work on that uh, that roundhouse or work on that, that particular part of the track work, uh, I have um, the ideas stored that I can go back to. Certainly, certainly. And Terry mentioned earlier on that he's an engineering manager. Terry, I mean, uh, I, I think of model railroading fundamentally as an engineering hobby. I know there are a wide variety of folks that come from a wide variety of disciplines. But um, in terms of your day job, have you been able to convert any of the philosophies into your model railroading? Boy, Tom, you caught me just as I was about to hang up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the answer is actually no. Uh, even though I have a lot of layout pictures posted on the bulletin board in my office, but uh, um, so far, you know, no no converts at work. No, no, I'm not talking about converts at work necessarily. I'm talking about taking, as Matt has described, engineering methodologies and using them, taking them from um, my background, I guess Matt's background as well, software engineering, agile development methodologies, uh, moving it to model railroading. Is there anything that you see in, uh, in your particular field of engineering that, uh, that you've been able to translate into model railroading? Uh, actually, not yet, but I intend to. Um, we're working with a lot of the same uh, hardware uh, microcontrollers that uh, are built into decoders and are built into most DCC systems. Also, what I do at work has a large networking content. So at some point, I'm hoping to be able to bring some of that technology into not only my personal railroad, but maybe into the hobby as a whole. And it loops back to things we were discussing at the, at the beginning of the podcast on Ethernet and, uh, you know, other protocols that could be used to control trains. Um, you know, either on the rails or on the throttle bus or, or some other things. Um, and if I had more time, I'd like to get plugged into the NMRA's efforts to standardize those things because they seem to be at an impasse, uh, an impasse that a good systems engineer might be able to get them out of. Oh, no. I, I don't know whether we'll get Deidre Kavos on our model rail radio now. Hopefully you won't listen to the show and we can just bring him on blind uh, after that description. I think... Um, I think what we, my impression, and then this again is probably poor editorialising um, going along the lines of never having Diedrich on, uh, is that they just come from a particular, I don't know, a particular mindset of engineering which is distinctly different than uh, perhaps the engineering mindset that uh, you know we've, we've been able to congregate uh, here this evening. And I think particularly in terms of open standards and also just ease of use and integration, there, and I get this with DCC as well. I mean, from my background, DCC is a real head-scratcher in terms of, you know, how it kind of came to be the uh, the standard, particularly in terms of the controllers and the integration and the ease of use and the general level of the lack of ease of use, the general level of difficulty, um, that basically consumer electronics, even consumer electronics of 10, 15 years ago, 
um, probably could have taught them in different direction. But the other point that I made to Diedrich is that this is, I mean, the, the stuff that they said about Canvas was that they wouldn't have to certify any of the stuff anymore. And I said, well, that's the same is true for Ethernet. And what would be more interesting is if someone like Duncan McCree actually started developing these uh, uh, Ethernet decoders, for want of a better term, that people just started dropping in their uh, in their locos, and then it was more a kind of grassroots kind of grassroots driven uh, venture. And then the NMRA would probably have less to say about it. But I really must get Diedrich on. I really must get a kind of official line as opposed to this perturbed line. Certainly, my editorialization very much comes from my own perspective. But he did say that, uh, you know, there will be CAN bus Ethernet interfaces for people that want to adopt that. Um, and obviously, my reaction has been heavily editorialized. So, Terry, if you need to go currently, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. If you want to stick around, stick around. Well, I, I do have to hang up uh, shortly. Um, but uh, if you feel that my comments would keep a guest off your show, please feel free to oh, no, not edit at them all. out. Not at all. No, because my comments are exactly the same. I, I would much rather actually have this show standing as a kind of continued discussion of people who may have some background in these kind of industries as much to say that we are looking to help the NMRA associated with this, not hinder them. I mean, Diedrich's comment immediately was who is Duncan McCree? And again, I, I didn't. I made the point very clearly that the views that I was stating were my own and not Duncan's. And he said, why has Duncan not been in contact? So I think what, what probably needs to happen is this audio needs to be recorded, needs to be put out there. And then we need to have Diedrich on uh, and other other members of, of the NMRA associated with this, um, not necessarily to... Uh, to kind of, uh, I don't know, blindsight them into these kind of questions, but at least uh, give the point that there are a number of model railroaders, and as uh, as was mentioned, obviously the uh, model railcast show has has talked about uh, internet-based obsessions, and I think this is probably the uh, you know the direction that lots of uh, folks such as ourselves are interested in taking the hobby in the future. So, yeah, I mean, the, the invitation will go out to Diedrich. I think we've already editorialized, even with the show with Duncan McCree on, uh, that this needs to be perhaps more associated with the contemporary technologies. Uh, and no, I mean, Terry, your comments will stay, well, not just because you agree with me, but also because uh, I think they need, to be, uh, they need to be memorialized in some form because I know we're going to get a lot of feedback. But, Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, like I say, there are no there are no bounces on model rail radio. Please feel free to call in in the future, and particularly when we get uh, when we get Tedrick on. I really do enjoy calling in, Tom. So I will be there in the future as time and schedule permits. Have a good night. You too, Terry. Bye. Bye, Terry. My anticipation was actually to do this as a short show and then have an extended post show. So, how are you placed, Jim, to uh, to do your uh, your own particular stick. magic? My stick. Your stick. <laughs> so you so you say I'm I I can I am I have no place to go and plenty of time. Very good, very good. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to conclude this short. It was originally anticipated to be a shorter show, and it has been a shorter show. And uh, a get well soon going out to uh, to Duncan McCree and also the one and only Chris Abbott. I'm sure uh, I'm sure Chris is uh, is enjoying listening. And in fact, I'm 
juror, Duncan McCree, who's also enjoying listening in as well. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the show next week. My hope is that uh, Chris will have recovered and it won't be some kind of superbug. Uh, and similarly, if we can get Duncan on, ideally we'll get uh, Diedrich and Duncan and uh, Terry and Ted and a wide variety of other folk together in a show in the future. The anticipation is the next show, if I, if I have my... Uh, well, the next show is going to be on the 5th, but the show following that will be a traction show. Uh, so, Ted, um, I know you have, you, know, you have friends and you also have a fellow... Uh, who I think occurred to you um, while we weren't talking about traction, who's a San Francisco, not only he's he's like a superintendent, but also models San Francisco. Is that right, Ted? He doesn't model San Francisco. He actually has the real things to play with. Ah. He's actually the uh, the maintenance supervisor for the, the F-Line. Oh, he would be. Yeah. Uh, what does he model? Is he is he model rail at all, or is he just? Uh... He he actually is the the owner of Light Rail Products, which is the uh, one of the, the largest one twenty fourth scale parts uh, producers. Very good. He, Very so good. So he does large scale. Ah, gosh. Well, um, yeah. This is a this is an untypical. Well, it was intended to be a short show. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having. Uh, do I you are you a t-shirt Ted? I think you might. I did uh I did post up on uh iTunes for us. Okay. I'm the story with the t-shirts is as follows. Um I've just gone back from the Bay Area. My anticipation was there would be a wonderful holiday spending time with my brother, but it would take up the t-shirt related money and at the same time I have now uh published or launched or whatever you use the term uh a book. Um, which will also be cutting into some of the model rail radio T-shirt related buddies, but I do understand um, that I'm no, 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 no. The people I said I'm getting T-shirts to are getting T-shirts uh, without question. Uh, so I have four folk in Canada, and I have you that will you in particular because it's easier to get you a T-shirt, or you're receiving a T-shirt in the very near future. Uh, I think. Do I have your postal address, Ted? I'll send it to you. Email it to me, definitely. Yes. Uh, so the T-shirts are going to be picking up in full force next month. I understand that uh, by not sending T-shirts out for the past uh, couple of months, it's been completely false economy because my anticipation is probably that I will be sending out maybe 12, 16 T-shirts in the next month based on that. But the Model Rail Radio T-shirts are um, a staple of the show and one that I'm sorry uh, hasn't been there for the past couple of months. Uh, it will be returning in full force uh, on the show on the 5th. And my anticipation is that there will probably be the largest model rail radio t-shirt giveaway ever on that particular show. So I'd like to thank the folks who have participated, Terry and Ted, obviously. We've had Matt Goodman come in. It's been, it seems to be a while since you were last on a show, Matt. Uh, yeah, I say, uh, last time I was talking on it, with any folks, it was with the uh, midweek, what do we call that thing, the, the midweek chat that we had. Ah, uh, yes. Was it a midweek I, chat or was it a... It was, was it, a, an, it was a Skype uh, event that that uh, Steve helped set up, and oh, I did. I did uh, come on the show a couple episodes ago. I think it was the Dave Ferry show. I came at the very end of that. And I, I uh, didn't start talking until after until the post show, though. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, Jim, it's always a pleasure to have your particular perspective on the model railroading hobby. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I had the pleasure. I've, I've got to say this. I had the pleasure of spending some quality time with Clark Cooning uh, this week. 
And Clark is really a very interesting, uh, very interesting fellow to spend some quality time with. Shout-outs to uh, Clark. He bought my dinner, which was very nice. We had a nice Italian meal with a wide variety of other uh, NMRA model rail-related folk. Uh, but it was an absolute pleasure uh, meeting Clark here in Las Vegas. It was rather difficult, actually. My wife teaches the evenings, uh, and just getting to um, Palace Station and obviously meeting up with Jimmy Simmons as well. There was some coordination associated with getting there, but to walk into a room and have, like I say, 18 men waiting with great anticipation to record a uh, model rail radio was really a phenomenon. I don't get to see this in real time. This was the thing also talking to the guys on the train uh, going from the Bay Area through to Reno. To see actual listeners or people that are uh, discovering the format in real time is just an amazing experience. And certainly as I've uh, eulogized on uh, on many previous shows, this thing is just a phenomenon. Uh, but to see people, and to see so many people actually, a room of uh, 16, this is perhaps my concern with going to some of these shows uh, as well, that, uh, you know, these, these kind of phenomena, I think probably uh, we could actually get a podcasting session together at one of the... Uh, one of the train shows, uh, particularly with the number of folks that are appearing on Ryan and, and Scotty's show currently. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, as, as of the previous show, Ryan came on. I think we're all uh, we're all fully lazing now in terms of the podcasting community here. So, Jim, I'm going to hand it over to you for uh, your, usual, uh, your usual post-show related practices. It's been a pleasure hosting this summit, I guess, eclectic, brought together at the last minute, Mobile Rail Radio. We're going to be recording again full force next week, hopefully with Chris Abbott in full strength. Thanks to everyone for calling in as well. And the chat has just been on fire all evening uh, as people that have uh, have been here live can actually see. We need to do another one of those uh, morning shows to get the UK listeners in as well. Uh, shout outs to Nobby Clark and, uh, and a wide variety of the folks in the UK that are really uh, also... Uh, Spreading the uh, the model rail radio, obviously Tom Cutting and uh, and others, uh, religion in the UK, and my hope is to actually get some more European callers as well on those uh, on those shows. So my anticipation is after the traction show will be another morning show, and I'll work out all the dates and post that to the mailing list of the Facebook group at all. I need to also point out that Ben is now Ben at modelrailradio.com. So welcome mm. to the fold, Ben. Congratulations, Ben. Thank you, and I will take a bow. And in large part, and I had to talk with a number of people, uh, the NMRA persuasion, it was due to the amazing interaction that you had with Dave Freire last show. And that kind of jamming session, in particular, catching Dave off guard, because I think when we get Dave back on next time, we really need to kind of move him out of his comfort zone. And I think a lot of the questions that you gave Ben uh, really moved him out of his comfort zone, where you get the best Dave Freire stuff. His, his pre-rehearsed stuff is good. But if you get him out of his comfort zone and get him dynamically thinking, I think that's really where the uh, where the amazing stuff happens with Dave. So thank you very much, Ben, for uh, for pushing him in a variety of directions. Yeah, I won't take any credit for that. <laughs> very good. Well, Jim, I'll let it uh, I'll let it get into the mayhem that you usually. Uh, what, what, what would you like to call yourself, ringmaster or something like that? Uh, I don't know. Get in the wash pit. I don't know. It's. I uh, said the what the the leader of the the no I was going to say three stooges but uh, no. <laughs> so thanks once again for everyone for uh, listening in for the participants. Good night. Good night. Good night. Hi Tom.